episode of the Hitchcock Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock-directed thriller North by Northwest, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm Josh Horowitz from 5 Minutes of Trouble, 5 Minutes of Bonsai, and 12 Chimes It's Midnight, and my co-host, who is a big movie aficionado and here to discuss the film with me for the second time, Mr. Brett Stillo. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. You're so good at those intros. Oh, thank you. I've had some practice. <laughs> that was so. Yes, you're, you know, a seasoned voice actor uh, is Mr. Horowitz, and uh, it just shows. Wasn't that exciting, folks? Hit pause, go back and listen <laughs> to that intro again. I felt like, you know, I, w- I was listening to the CBS Radio Mystery Theater in 1952, <laughs> and that was just, oh, look at the goosebumps. So... Actually, it's funny you you mentioned CBS Radio, Radio Mystery Theater. There was a uh, a SAG after radio play where I had a role when we recreated CBS uh, Radio Mystery Theater. It was called The Summer People. I remember The Summer People. Yeah, that see, there you go. I, I played the uh, the uh, hapless husband <laughs> who comes and uh, to this little town. We never recorded that, unfortunately, but uh, oh. I have a. A copy of that episode on YouTube. So it's, okay, so you could, a yeah, lot of check fun, the summer people. Check that out on YouTube. A a, a hapless gentleman. <laughs> kind, you know, interesting. Kind of a, I, what I remember about the character. He's one of those what's going on guys, much like our very own Roger Thornhill. Indeed, and uh, yes, we're we're talking about minute forty-two today of North by Northwest, and this minute starts with a CIA meeting in progress. And it ends with Mr. Roger Thornhill on a payphone in Grand Central Station. And we're going to talk about a minute here and uh, uh, end of exposition and sort of a, a start of our next phase of adventure in this fun film. Yeah, it's, it's a wrap-up. I think the key here is at the end of this scene in the briefing room, uh, they are cutting off Roger's lifeline. Huh. These people seem, you know, rather nice and neighborly, but uh, they're basically saying that Roger Thornhill is expendable. Yeah, yeah, he's he's on their own, or he's on his own, and uh, yeah, this is the minute where they just say that that two other agents apparently have uh, have gone before, and they they didn't have much luck. Uh, yeah. So so yeah, they don't want to take any more chances with this this guy. Yeah, and this is a matter of national security. Remember, folks, we are in the Cold War, so that's right. Uh, sacrifices have to be made, and and you know we we get to talk about the tagline you hear at the end of every episode. That's Mrs. Finley saying goodbye, Mister Thornhill, wherever you are. Yes, a very cold yeah, and uh, but somewhat uh, humorous line. Uh-huh. Um, do you, do you know the, the origin of that or the inspiration for that? What is it? That was one of the taglines of the, uh, the great Jimmy Durante. I don't know if, who remembers ah. Jimmy Durante. Uh, you know, an old nose. vaudeville comic. Yeah, with the big the schnozzola, as I think he called it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had a very raspy voice, which I'm not going to attempt. You can just find Jimmy Durante. Uh, on YouTube or someplace. Oh wait, that's right. Yeah, goodbye. Some something who, wherever you are. Yeah. yeah. What, what was the line? It, I believe it was good night, Mrs. Calabas, wherever uh, you are. Okay. And uh, I'm sure there's a long story about Mrs. Calabas and hmm. what that meant. 
Uh, I'm almost certain Durante was, you know, vaudeville and possibly even burlesque. And uh, <laughs> that was just, that was the end of the act. Good night, Mrs. Calabas, wherever you are. That's Okay, so I did a Durante. Oh, I said I wouldn't. Oh, eh, I don't know. I remember hearing somewhere that he had his nose insured for several million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> just his nose. That that was the act. That was his gimmick. Mm-hmm. So uh, now you know. He, as I re- also recall, he's had sort of a beat up fedora. Mm. The brim flipped up. Um, so anyway, that that was that's Jimmy Durante. So that's uh, that sort of gives an added little uh, meaning to that line. She's quoting Jimmy mm. Durante. So I think audiences mm-hmm. in '59 would have maybe chuckled a little bit more. At uh-huh. that, and it, that, that just seems like a very sort of Hitchcock, something you'd hear in a Hitchcock movie, of you know, sort yeah. of a little, you know, a one-liner, and kind of a cold one-liner at that. Yeah, I mean, she had mentioned earlier this character that, you know, aren't we being callous? But you know, by saying this line, it's like, who's being callous now? They kind of <laughs> give yeah. up. Yeah, the, I think, uh, you know, Mrs. Finley has a moment of, of uh, reservation, maybe a moment of compassion for poor Roger, this this guy who has stumbled into this, but then it's business is business. Mm-hmm. Because this is the Cold War. And then we have, we have a nice uh, dissolve transition to uh, the train station, but I, I feel like we should give these folks a do- Actually, yeah, there there is one more thing I want to kind of note about this one. So, you know, so this is the Cold War. Yeah. And we've got this character, Van Damme. So is he supposed to be working with the Russians then? I mean, the name sounds Dutch. Right. And and it's the Dutchman with a British accent. Right. You know, that's a really good question. Um, and, you know, it makes me wonder if if Van Damme was perhaps based on uh some duplicitous figure who wasn't necessarily a russian but was passing information on i don't know a double agent of some kind i f- i feel like he's he's a bit of a nod to uh some of the characters in hitchcock's thrillers in the 30s you know he mm-hmm. did these intrigue movies uh but countries were never named it was always a mysterious foreign power so uh yeah, I, that's, I, I, I'm not exactly sure. Or, you know, who knows? Maybe Ernest Lehman had yeah. a, a, a backstory that, um, you know, Van Damme was an alias. Uh, yeah. but, well, that could be. Yeah. But then, of course, I hear the name Van Damme, and the first thing I think of is Jean-Claude. Yeah. <laughs> and that led me to think, I mean, what, what has he been up to lately? <laughs> um, In 2020. I'm sure whatever it is is going straight to Netflix oh. or Amazon Prime. Was he in the Expendables with all of those other action stars? I'm, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna just say yes. Hmm. You know, last I recall hearing about Jean Claude Van Damme, who, yeah, maybe that's why he learned the martial arts and he, you know, became a fighter. Was he had this uncle who, uh, you know. Uh, Disgraced the family name in the 1950s. Oh, really? Yeah. This guy. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, (laughs) you know, the name Van Damme means double agent. Uh, Ah, in Dutch. Yeah. So (laughs) Van Damme you. So, uh, but do you remember a few years back Van Damme did, uh, I 
can't remember what exactly he did, but it was in front of a green screen. I think he did. I think he did a couple karate moves, and he had a couple lines from his movies. So the joke was, it became a bit of an internet sensation. People were taking that clip and yeah. uh, putting, uh, you know, whatever uh, <laughs> behind the, the green screen shot. So it could, you know, outer space, dinosaurs. So maybe what we need to do is find that clip and huh. uh, put them in North by Northwest. Oh, there we go. Yeah. The ultimate crossover. Yeah, there there you go. So uh, we will not do that. We're kind of busy right now. But if any of you want to take that clip of Jean-Claude Van Damme uh, and, you know, put him in the scene of your choice. It could be it could be at the, the train station coming up. It could be here in the office. Uh, it could be uh, the crop duster scene. It could be the crop duster scene, of course. You know, the, the sky is the limit. Maybe you want to put Jean-Claude right. Van Damme on Washington's nose. I kind of do. <laughs> I kind of do. <laughs> Who doesn't? But yeah, you know, one one cool thing, you know, these these people, it's kind of hard to find their actual names in the credits. They're they're buried. It took a little bit of digging, but mm. you have four uh, very seasoned uh, character actors here uh, uh-huh. around the table. There's Walter Coy. Uh, Lawrence Dobkin, uh, Madge Kennedy, very interesting actress because Mrs. Finley at one time was a silent screen leading lady around oh, wow. World War One. She was uh, she was top billed. Um, hmm. And here she is, you know, decades later, uh, still acting. Uh, I believe she was also had a small role about 20 years later in The Marathon Man with Dustin Hoffman and Lawrence Olivier. Marathon. So wow. just these people just their careers were long and they did a lot of stuff. Then there's Harvey Stevens. Uh actor and glider pilot look up harvey stevens the glider pilot but don't get him confused with harvey spencer stevens who played the mean little kid in the omen different harvey stevens (laughs) but uh if you take these four actors and add uh leo g carroll uh you know you have you have hundreds and hundreds of credits in you know tv shows movies stage i mean these people had careers so hats yeah. off to all of them yeah well, hitchcock uh you know always a a person who found good people in his films and this is no exception so let us move on then yes from the room of exposition to a very busy place in new york yes Grand central station oh 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 no you're in trouble oh What's that? I, I got a note from the management that uh, it's actually Grand Central Terminal. Ah. I, I didn't know it myself. So, you know, I'm just sounding yeah. like a big shot. But, okay. you know, it's it's <laughs> where if, if a station is, if it's along the way, along the tracks. Uh-huh. Uh, quick example. I was just uh, in your neck of the woods at Union Station. Mm-hmm. But see, that's a station. You know, you, I was coming north and, uh, you know, you come and go. This is a, a, a terminal. It's a terminus. Uh, a lot of lines mm-hmm. begin from this place. So officially, it's Grand Central Terminal. I I'm see. a know-it-all. Yeah. Well, but that, re- that, That's yeah. why you're here. You, you have to clarify <laughs> these things. That's important. <laughs> I'm here to sound like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I just got an email. and said, be, be sure to call it Grand Central Terminal. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, I was just there actually, uh, well, about a year ago. I hadn't been in many, many years, and it's 
the busyness is is no different than what you see right here. That's amazing. I mean, it, the place That's is amazing. packed. Uh, you know, lots and lots of people walking around, and and this very large United States flag. And I have some interesting stuff about this flag, actually. If you look closely, you see that it's a 48-star flag. Oh, I missed and that. this is a flag that was in use until 1959. And at that point, Alaska became a state. Then it was, you know, 49 stars. And then, you know, later uh, became 50 with Hawaii. Uh, but I was just interested in, in knowing, well, okay, well, why didn't they change the flag if, you know, 49 was available? So I was looking it up, and Wikipedia says that according to the U.S. Army Institute of Heraldry, the United States flag never becomes obsolete. Any approved American flag may continue to be used and displayed until no longer serviceable. So, like, if you've been to the Smithsonian and you see uh, the, the Francis Scott Key flag from uh, the War of 1812, you know, I mean, it's it's in disrepair, but, I mean, as long as it still can wave, basically, it doesn't matter how many stars it has that can be put up on a flagpole and that's considered okay wow so that's uh there's your your flag history for uh for today that's super cool that's very cool it it makes me wonder because that flag is pretty big mm-hmm. you know what did uh the city of new york do with that 48 star flag is it is it somewhere in a basement uh is is it used as a backup i don't know um, there's yeah. there's some trivia I mean, I there. Guess if it's even even if it's still in good condition today, they could technically keep it up there. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I, I, I'm very. It, it's rare that I see too many flags with less than fifty stars today, but I wonder if there are still some that are are flying somewhere. Yeah, I I I, I feel like that's a great twist, and it's probably been used in a movie where you know. Mm. Look at the stars, or something like that. But that's that's mm-hmm. very cool, and and yeah, this is a you know this is a legendary structure. It's it's interesting that uh, earlier we had Roger at the United Nations, but it wasn't really the United Nations. I think he they have a a, a gorilla shot of him walking up to the United Nations, but you know the interior mm-hmm. is a set, very good set, very stylish set. Uh, <clears throat> But this is the real thing, I think. Even in 59, location filming was kind of unique. So it's, it's interesting to see they are in a very familiar place. And they're, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like they're, they're using natural lighting to a degree because it's, it's, it adds to the character of the building. It's got some shadows. So, mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, Grand Central Terminal, this version of it opened in 1913. So when you were there last year, I mean, it was... It's been in just constant a, a neat use structure for over too. I remember, years. you know, like looking up and you know the type of architecture that they had. It's it's impressive. Yeah, and it's like stepping back in time, kind of when you go there. Time, yeah, timeless grandeur. And yeah, again, you think about all the people who've come and gone over decades. But this here we're seeing it in 1959, and yeah. uh, I gotta say, I I just got stuck at a point here. I just froze on a guy in the background. Stuck stuck i just it as the camera um uh moves downwards uh you know it's a it's a great shot it sort of starts in the ceiling and we come down and suddenly we're on the floor and in the background around second 35 is is a tall guy with a big bushy mustache and receding hair and he just i just kind of got stuck on that guy because that looks like character actor roger c carmel 
I think that's how his last name was spelled, Roger C. Carmel. But you folks would know him better from Star Trek and the character of Harry Mudd, which he played twice on the original Star Trek. And that's the same guy. I, wow. I'm pretty sure if you look at Roger C. Carmel, even though that guy is in the background, he's very tall. Uh-huh. Carmel was 6'3". Um, this, this, you know, I looked him up on IMDb. I could not find any reference to North by Northwest. You know, this movie has a huge, huge cast, Mm -hmm. all kinds of people, uh, actually a a reference to, you know, the previous scene, we had, again, four veteran character actors who, uh, you know, have maybe a line or two each. I mean, you know, uh, you know, and they're, but they're buried in the credits. Uh, all kinds of people are in this movie. And so I, I kind of wonder if old Harry Mudd there, this would be early in his career. This might have been just a bit part. Yeah. He was from New York. He did stage work. Uh, this would have been an easy, um, hey, you can be an extra. But uh, because of his height, he sticks out. He's talking to a guy with a hat. I don't know who that is, but um, I don't know. Uh, prove me wrong. I'm, I'm sure uh, some of our uh, listeners will chime in. Yes, that's absolutely Harry Mudd. No way is it Harry Mudd. Uh, I knew Harry Mudd. Um, so we leave it to you. Is it or is it not Harry Mudd? Uh, one fascinating thing I can tell you is uh, two people who you do not see uh, in this scene but were there. Uh, there were two uh, young assistants, gophers, working on this production. A 19-year-old named George A. Romero, mm-hmm. who, uh, yeah, uh, who apparently was not really impressed uh, watching Alfred Hitchcock work. Uh, <laughs> but he, he went out and had a career of his own, most notably eight years later with Night of the Living Dead, uh, a right. game changer. Um, and then also, I don't know if they knew each other at the time, but... Uh, uh, another guy who's big in modern horror, uh, Larry Cohen, writer and director. Um, the Stuff, It's Alive, a uh, lot of crazy, crazy uh, movies. Q, crazy movie. And uh, yeah, so he was also there as a teenage assistant. So huh. I, I I had to take a moment to wonder uh, what was it like for these guys uh, to watch Hitchcock work? Um, but you know, yeah, like I said, uh, Romero just wasn't in awe and it does bring to mind, uh, Hitchcock is famously known for his planning. Uh, he was a big, big pre-production guy. And, you know, for him, the actual filming was a formality. It was boring. Uh, the, Hmm. you know, it was already done. He was just sort of there to make sure all his plans were carried out. And it's it's a it's a great sequence. I mean, you really get a sense of the scope and the size of the building. Yeah, and I noticed that the the people that are there, uh, you still get a glimpse of some of the men wearing hats. Yeah, I know that that was a huge thing through the '40s and the '50s, and then it started getting out of fashion. You know, and you didn't really see it in the '60s, but yeah, uh, yeah. So, you know, hats are out. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, it's, I think it's it's the transition. You know, it's interesting because because Jim. Uh, did the airport minute, um, mm-hmm. and and one of the themes in that is it's it's the end of the hat. Yes, there are a handful of characters who wear hats. Uh, Van Heflin has a very peculiar beat up hat. 
I feel like this is the transition. Again, you kind of look through uh, Grand Central. You see some cool hats, but you see just as many people without hats. Uh, going back to Roger C. Carmel, because I can't stop talking about that guy. Uh, <laughs> he's not wearing a hat. You can see he's got a bit of a bald patch developing. Yeah. He should, by all rights, be wearing a hat. But he right. Isn't. He has every right to, but he doesn't have a hat. That's probably and one reason why I probably recognized him was uh, okay. because of that. The cops do, though. And I just made a note here that it's interesting. Here's a movie that's, you know, over 60 years old, and cops haven't changed their uniforms and looks. These could easily be cops today. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, as I recall, I think they have those Sam Brown belts, which I don't think they wear so much anymore. So, you know, a little, but it's little tiny changes. Hmm. Cops still look like cops. They aren't wearing like pith helmets or something weird like that. <laughs> I seem to recall that on uh, Bonsai, when we were talking about that, uh, they were the New Jersey policemen. Yeah. Very distinct uh, police outfits with the, uh, you know, the... What do you call that? That is that the Sam Brown belt? You know the thing that goes across. I believe that uniform has is pretty much the same. I'm, as I recall, it was yeah the New Jersey State Police, and it was the father mm-hmm. of General Norman Schwarzkopf, uh, hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Again, we'll get a letter if I'm wrong. But uh, yeah, those are. Um, total throwback uniforms. And just as an yeah. aside, when we did those minutes in Buckaroo Banzai, we actually wondered initially, was this a costume of some kind? But no, that's that's what they wear, and they hmm. still pretty much wear it today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's happening here? So the cops are looking around, and we hear that the 20th Century Limited is going to be leaving soon. And this is going to be uh, sort of a character in its own coming up. Right. And I missed that, you know, with everything going on. And again, I blame Harry Mudd. I was fixated. Uh, I missed that little subtle audio reference that the 20th Century Limited is leaving and soon. Yes. Uh, but we'll, we'll be talking quite a bit, I think, about the, that famous train that Roger is trying to get on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then we, we see Roger in the phone booth and then... Very nice cut. We have a, him in the phone booth, and it's Cary Grant. It is. Did you know Cary Grant was in this movie? I, you know, oh, I was <laughs> I was surprised. I I heard about Roger Thornhill, and said, Cary Grant is playing Roger Thornhill. I think of all the actors to play Thornhill over the years, he is the uh, the best the one. He's Roger. the most memorable. Yeah. yeah. Roger, Roger on Rogers. So, um, <laughs> I'm sure our our colleagues have been talking about Mr. Grant. He he had a he had a pretty good career, from what I understand. What are your thoughts on on Cary Grant? I, I mean, a, a very established actor, an English actor who was talking in that that fun transatlantic accent throughout the film. Uh, I, honestly, I haven't really seen that many Cary Grant films other than this. Uh, but I can tell you that he he delivers his lines great. He's he's older in this, isn't he? In his like fifties at this point. Yeah, I believe he's about fifty five here. Yeah, and that's that's an important point because you and I have been looking at the script, and you get a sense Roger on paper is younger, yeah. thirty five or forty. 
Probably. I, yeah. I, I feel like, you know, there's a, there's a conceit that Roger is supposed to be a younger man. Uh, and but it's Cary Grant, so uh, yeah, he pulls it off. Yeah, he pulls it off. He's he's got that appeal, that that very Bond type appeal. Oh yeah, that we'll yeah. see in, in Bond films later. He's so smooth, yeah, effortless. Uh, he's Dapper you know looks sure. Yeah. He's the best Cary Grant I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> it's just it's interesting to me because you know I, I grew up watching old movies. And he was one of the first guys as, as like a toddler that I noticed. I think it was that voice and that energy that he projects on screen. I just, I like this guy. He talks kind of funny, but I like him. So, yeah, yeah. It's to me, I wouldn't say I'm a huge Cary Grant fan, of, but he's always been around. He's always been a fixture. I uh, I had to remind myself at one point that, you know, he's been dead since 1986. I feel, in a way, I feel like uh, he's still with us. Maybe that's just the immortality of cinema. Cin- cinema. Cinnamon. Yeah. It's the immortality. Cinema. Cinema. <laughs> yes. Cinema. Immortality. And uh, I, I will say one thing, because uh, something you alluded to and other people have said um, that, you know, Cary Grant had the Mid-Atlantic accent. I'm sorry, man. To these ears, he's always sounded British to me. Hmm. There's that that East End or Cockney, just is is always there. So, you know, you'll occasionally you'll watch a Cary Grant movie, and there'll be some allusion to him. You know, I grew up in the Midwest, and I was like, No, you didn't. <laughs> Midwest I, of England. Yeah, the Midwest of England. Right. Yeah. Uh, exactly. He grew up on the Moors or something. But, uh, um, I mean, that said, I do love that voice. Uh, mm-hmm. In our previous episode, we were talking about British actors who are so good at hiding that accent. They sound like perfect Americans. I wouldn't want Cary Grant to sound American. I, I like yeah. that. It just adds to the charm and, and the mystique of the man. Yeah, and, yeah. Very, and the way he just says, distinct. oh, mother. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I have a note here about just uh, where he's using his dulcet tones, and that's that phone booth. And I remember we, we discussed this one on Bonsai also. Do kids these days even know what a phone booth is? And I, I think the answer is no, because uh, just maybe like a week ago, I showed my daughter Ilana, who's who's seven now, uh, I, I showed her a wall payphone that happened to be at a location I was at and she asked me what kind of cell phone it was right yeah so yeah this is a uh, a thing that will be lost to history we could we could take it a step back further that this would be a dial phone yeah and a rotary phone a ro- <laughs> yes that's what I mean a ro- yeah a rotary phone and <laughs> it's probably also that transitional era when um you know, there were regions and, you know, your operator get me, you know, uh, Springfield 9210 or something like that. You know, it was, uh, hmm. uh, you know, individual numbers were becoming a thing. It was a transitional time. But just, yeah, I, 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 I can imagine Alana's confusion and wonder <laughs> at, a, at a wall phone, which seemed. But this is a whole it's it's like a bathroom for a phone. Yeah. It was a privacy booth. A privacy booth. And, and would Hard-pressed to find that today. Yeah, yeah. 
it's it's an heirloom. Yes. Uh, but the, but the other note I had here is that you know Thorn- Thornhill's talking to his mother in this privacy booth, and for a man on the run from the law, he certainly seems cool and collected. That's his character. He, he never, you don't see him sweat very much in this movie. Yeah, I think uh, again that's something I noted in reading the script. Thornhill on paper is a very different character to me. Um, I'm not sure if. I'm, I'm going to assume that Cary Grant was always the first choice to play Roger Thornhill. Hmm. When Ernest Lehman was uh, writing this, I don't know if he had Cary Grant in mind uh, or not, but uh, he's he on paper he comes off a little more self-absorbed, a little more desperate. Um, hmm. You know, much more one of those uh, Hitchcock characters of, no, you, you've got to believe me. Um, <laughs> or, you know, I can't believe this is happening. Or, you know, his his conversation here is, uh, I've got to get out of town. It's my only chance. And, yep. you know, Grant's delivery is, yeah, it's absolutely charming. He's in control of, of this. He's He's got to leave, but it, it almost seems like he's, he's enjoying it. Yep. Well, I, I suppose I'll get out of town and, you know. This is why he's Cary Grant. I feel like, yeah, yeah. There's again, there's the Thornhill on paper, but then there's uh, Grant taking those lines and mm. just finding a different beat with them and a different approach, yeah. where it becomes more of a sigh mm. than anything else. Oh, I guess I'll jump on the train. <laughs> See ya. Well, we'll we'll get more more Cary Grant minutes coming up. Oh, good. As, uh, he continues his riveting conversation with his mother, uh, but that basically wraps up this minute of uh, of the Hitchcock minute. Uh, here's some things to say. You can find the Hitchcock Minute podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Play, or at the main site HitchcockMinute.com. Social media is available at the Man on Washington's Nose on Facebook and on Twitter at Hitchcock Minute. Uh, and that basically wraps it up. Any last thoughts, Brett? Nope. I, I think we, we have a train to catch, but that's going to take a while. So uh, let's get on with it. Nice. All right. Well, then, for Brett, I'm Josh Horowitz. Please join us here next time on the Hitchcock Minute. Goodbye, Mr. Thornhill, wherever you are.